Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we'll be talking about Blackwood's Baby by Laird Barron, originally published in 2011. We're going to be doing two episodes on this one, and as is tradition, or <laughs> convention, I should say, for Clay Temple <laughs> Media, this will be our recap episode. Yeah, someday, maybe just to mix it up, we'll do the discussion episode first, <laughs> and then use the second episode to tell people what the story is about. <laughs> well, we should say, too, before we get into it, that uh, these are bonus episodes that we are doing because one of our Patreon supporters commissioned them, uh, along with three others. Uh, we've already done Black Corfu by Karen Russell and The Dead and the Countess by Gertrude Atherton here on Elder Sign. And then Valerie and I are also going to be doing the John Scalzi novel, Red Shirts. And this is an extraordinarily generous commission, and so we are extraordinarily grateful for it. So we just want to say thank you so much, both for the support and also for the impetus to read all these great stories that we otherwise would not have gotten to. It's been so awesome to read these writers that have been either on my short list or personally recommended by listeners of the show or other people I know, uh, you know, outside of the context of Clay Temple Media. It's been such a gift to us as a network and as, and to me personally, as a reader of weird fiction and horror stories is a huge fan of those things. Uh, so I really also want to echo your thanks, Glenn, and just add a heartfelt uh, modifier to it. <laughs> just <laughs> offer a real heartfelt thank you uh, to our generous uh, Patreon supporter who commissioned this block of stories for us to cover. And this is really great because I am super excited to read some Laird Barron. Laird Barron is a writer that I've been aware of for a long time, but have have just never read and after reading this story, I'm really happy that we've got an entire collection on our shelves that we can start working through now. That is going to be a lot of fun. And this story in particular is asking the question, what if Ernest Hemingway had written the classic Algernon and Blackwood story, The Wendigo? And I think this story is a pretty good answer to that question. I think you're right. And uh, I hadn't thought to put it in that context. Of course, I'm not as familiar with Algernon Blackwood's uh, corpus as you are, Glenn. Uh, but yeah, what a great way to pitch this story to our audience. Right. Well, and I suspect it was the way that it was pitched to the editor as well. It is it is on the nose as that type of story, though. I don't know that we'll actually do too much pointing that out simply because the Wendigo is a story that someday we are going to cover. I mean, it's one of the classics of the genre and uh, maybe we'll save some of our feelings and insights for an episode actually dedicated to the Wendigo. But hey, before we do any of that, we need to do the recap for this story. So let's get into it. And Brandon, you're up. Luke Honey sits in a boarding house looking wistfully at the cantina across the street where he's been kicked out for fighting. A stock boy from the bar brings Luke a bottle of booze every two days so that Luke can stay in his cups. Today, Luke is drinking Irish whiskey and he's being kept company by Clerk Gartero. I think Clerk is more the role than his first name, though. I was a little confused by that, I'll be honest. Uh, so I'm just going to call him Galtero. Galtero is from Barcelona, and Luke had heard that Galtero had served in the French Foreign Legion during the Great War and that he'd been wounded there as well, though the wound is fairly obvious to anybody who is in Galtero's presence. A poor boy enters the boarding house at this point, and we learn that this is really not a place that anybody should be living. Uh, cockroaches are just everywhere. The boy is 11 or 12, though, quote, his eyes suggest a sullen apathy 
born of wisdom, not something you want to see in a child. The boy's face is worn, and he just looks aged. And Luke wonders if he looks the same, but he doesn't know because he doesn't really look at himself in the mirror. We learn that Luke is a professional hunter, and Luke knows that he's been worn down by the trade in which he's led safaris in Africa. But he knows other hunters, a boar and a Canadian, who seem not to have been worn down by their work in death, their dealing in death, but instead seem to have been revitalized and grow stronger as a result of their vocation, as though killing animals has given them this strength. This boy that's entered the boarding house is a messenger, and he's brought Luke Honey a telegram. Luke sets the telegram aside. He drinks a shot of whiskey and he lights a cigarette. Lots of taking shots of whiskeys, <laughs> lighting cigarettes in this story <laughs> as, uh, as two women come down the stairs and they just give Luke a dirty look and then they leave. Goltero explains to Luke that the ladies have been complaining to him about Luke because Luke cries out like a madman in delirium in his sleep and the walls are thin in this boarding house. So after Luke has, I don't know, sturdied himself with whiskey and cigarettes, he reads the letter. He has been invited by one Mr. Liam Wellock to participate in an annual private hunt that takes place in Washington state. The hunt is to take place on some remote ancestral property, and you have to be either a hunter of great renown or super rich to get an invite. Luke tells Galtero to apologize to the lady for his nightmares. Then Galtero and Luke talk a little bit about how Luke is different from other American hunters who have set up shop in Africa. You know, for instance, Luke doesn't wear his trophies as accessories like animal teeth and horns and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, but this whole business and really this whole intro of this story, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter. It's a wonderful introduction to these characters, but it doesn't really play into the larger story. Because Luke is done with the bush, and he'll be leaving for America soon. So he goes to bed that night. He has a nightmare about his brother, Michael. And this is something that he's been experiencing for the set for the past six nights. This is important to the story. The next day, Luke makes travel arrangements, and then he travels to Washington State. This opening, I mean, it is awesome. It is seriously hard-boiled. Uh, we start with how hot it is and how much it sucks that it is so hot and everything is falling apart. The, the whole world in this opening is in a state of decay. There are, are flies and cockroaches. There's a, a weird yellow dust. And our protagonist is he's just doing some day drinking with whiskey while he thinks about all the poor decisions he's made in his life that have led him to this moment. All of it is just awesome. It is totally my thing. Uh, we also learned that Luke Honey, which is also, that's a hard-boiled name if ever there was one, right? <laughs> we learned that Luke Honey likes to crack wise. He maybe doesn't have the best filter. Uh, the women who've been complaining about nightmares are some wealthy English women, and, and Luke really doesn't care if his nightmares are keeping them up, and he is not shy about that fact. And this is a character trait that is going to matter to the plot later, so it's an, an important development here. And one more thing to say at the beginning here is, is that the, the First World War has only ended about a decade ago, and that is going to linger over this whole story, and it is something that we're going to be taking up in the discussion as well. But it seems like, in this opening at least, the war has affected everyone. It really has, uh, not only in creating an expatriate scene in what could be South Africa, but... 
this location isn't exactly nailed down for us where Luke is, but we'll see it in the rest of the characters as well. The way the war just sort of haunts them or the way they're, or the way that their machismo becomes a sort of tragic flaw for some of these men. And you're right to say that Luke cracks wise. I suppose I should have said that his apology or his uh, advice or his insistence that Galtero apologize to the women on his behalf is really a sardonic suggestion, though I think uh, that Luke's sarcasm and sardonic persona are a cover for a lot of personal tragedy. Well, Luke and the rest of the hunting party arrive at the Black Ram Lodge, which is in Washington State. They all show up in the early evening, and the weather's pretty bad, and Luke finds a place to hang outside for a minute so he can smoke a cigarette before heading in. Luke has kept his weapons with him rather than letting the porter take them to his room. Uh, We learn here that Luke carries nothing but disdain for most of the other guests that have been invited uh, to this hunting party. He really particularly dislikes the men he rode with uh, from the airport. Their names are Wesley and Bullard. They're British gentlemen. They fought in World War I. Everyone eats together. There's a big kind of dinner party. And the hosts of the party, Dr. Lanscombe and Mr. Wellick, break out the booze after dinner and everyone feels it. Everyone's getting into a pretty good mood. And soon, Lord Bullard decides to tell a story of one hunting expedition in particular he was on in Mexico. It's time for uh, the biggest fish type stories that we might expect. (laughs) Bullard, we learn, though, does actually have some real credentials. He was a soldier in the Boer War, and he fought in India, I suppose, in World War I as well. But as I said, in 1919, so after the war, he was in Mexico. And there weren't any wars for him to fight. So he and his friends were getting pretty bored. And this is, a, I think, a really distressing categorization, a really distressing characterization of just who this Bollard character is. There's a little conversation here among the hunting party about how Germany is preparing for war. So everybody's going to be able to fight in a bloody war again. Hooray. But Bullard <laughs> wants to continue his story in Mexico. He's, you know, doesn't want to engage in all this chit chat. It turns out that Mr. Wesley was with Bullard in Mexico. And it's clear, and this is a big part of the story, that Luke just does not like the cut of Wesley's jib. The men Wesley and Bullard and their their little hunting party in Mexico had been invited to a prince's villa for a hunt and for some partying. They did some cantina hopping, you know, around this time and soon were accosted by an American who was down on his luck and asking them for help. But Bullard and Wesley soon discovered that this encounter was a kind of setup. The American already knew their names, and he knew about the hunt along with some other things. And this by itself resulted in the encounter feeling sort of spooky. Luke knows better, though. He's maybe experienced this sort of thing before. And he tells the men that this American was a grifter. This is a con that Luke has encountered. And he asks the men if this American invited them to a seance or 
to some sort of situation where they have their fortunes told. So, yes, this is a regular con that Luke is aware of. And Bullard goes on to say that, yeah, the man did invite them to, quote, a smoky den of cutthroats and thieves where an ancient crone read the entrails of chickens. So <laughs> Luke is, you know, doing the classic, you know, the fish was really this big. Um, but it was it turns out that this woman, this old crone, sent the American to find Bullard and Wes- Wesley. And as I've said, Luke knows that this is a ruse. And he's actually offended Bullard and Wesley by pointing it out, by pointing out that this is a con job. Anyway, the point of Bullard's story is that they had their fortunes told, and it was all very real. So Luke's attack on the story has derailed this telling in the worst. <laughs> it's like jumping in with a punchline before somebody can finish a joke. Uh, but Bullard powers through. He continues anyway. They had their fortunes told, and the future is not bright. Trouble is coming. The men laugh it off, and they leave, and then they head up to the prince's villa for the hunt. Uh, 12 men were on the hunt and, you know, they shot two boars and wounded another boar, which they ended up having to track through the jungle because it's really bad form. And it is actually bad form to wound an animal and then not kill it if you're hunting. They track the boar to some caves and they're told by the prince that they really should not head into those caves because this cave system is largely unexplored. Luke, at this point, jumps in again. He mocks Bullard and Wesley a little more, and he's crossed the line. Wesley wants to duel Luke for making this insult. Then Dr. Lanscombe talks everyone down, and he makes sure everyone's cup is full, and he's being a good host. And once he does this, Bullard can finish his story. Three of the hunting party decide to go into the cave system, and, well, they disappeared. No one ever saw them again. And now the locals tell a tale about men screaming in the caves on certain nights before a storm. This is a great story. It's a great hunting story. It's a great ghost story. Uh, this is the right way, I think, to start any sort of trip with a group of men is to just sit around <laughs> and tell, tell ghost stories. And no one really has anything to follow it up with, rightly so. That is until Mr. Wellick decides to tell the tale of the tradition of the hunt that this group of men are going to be participating in. The town that they're in was settled by the ancestors of Mr. Wellock and Dr. Lanscombe. The property that the Black Ram sits on was purchased in 1890 by Wellock's grandfather. Uh, and the hunt is an annual tradition that it seems at this point began that year, though that's not strictly speaking the case. And hey, everyone, good luck. We're going to have a great time. Lanscombe jumps in here and says that there's lots of great hunting on this ground, on this estate. But the prize animal of this hunt, of the tradition of this hunt, is a creature known as Blackwood's baby. That's the name, the nickname given to a huge stag that stalks the woods. And we learn that neither the stag nor any of its progeny, anything in its line of pedigree, have been taken by a hunting party. But if someone hunts it down this year... They'll get a real nice gun and $10,000 sterling. And after this pronouncement, pretty much everyone goes to bed. Yeah, this is a fantastic scene. These hunters gathered around and sharing stories. This is a classic move. 
And the, the story about the fortune teller and the Austrians lost in the caves really sets the tone for the story that we're reading. In fact, this business here, this marks the transition from the hard-boiled to the supernatural. And although we don't get anything supernatural in the story about the stag here, we are going to get that later. And this is really our first hint of it. So this is an important demarcation in where the story is going. I, I want to take a, a minute here to, to look at one of the motifs that Baron is uh, emphasizing here. He makes a, a point really to, to emphasize some serious class distinctions between Luke and the rest of the hunters who've been invited to the Black Ram. Bullard is an English aristocrat, and he mercilessly makes fun of the working class people they see on the way to the lodge. And Bullard also complains about having to listen to his wealthy industrialist friends whine about business being slow uh, after the First World War. So he looks down on people who don't have money, but he also looks down on people who have loads of money but like to think about that money and how to get more. And it is a really great characterization. Uh, Wesley is his traveling companion. He's addressed as Mr. Bullard is addressed as Lord. So Wesley is clearly not actually an aristocrat, but he does also obviously share these values, whatever his actual station is. And then there's Dr. Lanscombe and Mr. Wellick, who are the, the owners of the Black Ram. These are also wealthy elites. Uh, Dr. Lanscombe trained at Harvard, and he owns half of everything in the county. And Wellock owns even more than that, including estates in England and France. And then we get this trio from Texas, who are also members of the owner class. Uh, there's a, a ranch baron, a banker, and a mine owner. So it's only Luke, as we're going to find out later, it is only Luke who doesn't seem to come from money in this mix. Right. And he has a real chip on his shoulder about that because he's lived this sort of rugged life that he doesn't think anybody else can really understand. Though I think, given what we know about the experiences of World War One, that some of these other men are more full of bluster and trauma than they are of than than is led on in this story. Well, I wonder about that, and, and maybe I'll just say one thing here, and then we can leave this for the discussion episode, but rich man's war, poor man's fight is an adage for a reason. And so even though we do know that Bollard and Wesley were in the First World War, we also know that they were older when they got there, and Bollard must have been something like a colonel or something like that in the war, and so one suspects that their wartime experiences were perhaps different from Wilfred Owens or J.R.R. Tolkien's or C.S. Lewis's, for example. That's an excellent point, and I think uh, that plays a big role in what's going on in this story as well. Well, it's night, everyone has gone to bed, and Luke Honey has another dream about his brother. And this time we get some information about this dream. Luke and his brother are working in the fields in Ingram. Michael, Luke's brother, turns and waves to Luke, and there's a hole where his left eye should be. Luke wakes up with fear in his heart. He dresses in the dark and he heads out to the stables. Also, I mean, they're get, everybody's getting up really early to kind of prepare for this hunt anyway. Uh, so <laughs> even though this nightmare has woken Luke up, it's time to get up. Uh, Mr. Wesley has also come out to the stables and he finds Luke there. And Wesley's wearing simple clothes and he sees Luke and he rolls up his sleeves and they just proceed to duke it out here. And Luke starts really strong. He hits Mr. Wesley really hard in the ribcage just below the heart. And then Mr. Wesley gains the upper hand and Luke goes down in the fight. 
And while Luke is down, Mr. Wesley kicks Luke, and he's certain that he's bested him. Mr. Williams is another hunter, and he's kind of Luke's friend throughout this story. They kind of uh, are buddies on this hunting trip. Mr. Williams sees that Luke is down and asks if he need a, needs a doctor. It's a really funny bit of dialogue here. I'm not going to read, but I want people to read this story. So I'm just going to say uh, this scene was a real highlight for me. But Luke is all right. He's just a little worse for wear. Yeah, this fight is going to come back later on in the the plot. And it is a really good scene. I mean, I think what we're meant to understand about Wesley here is that, right, he is Mr. He is not Lord. He was he has been with Bullard, Lord Bullard, for a long time uh, since the Boer War, where he probably was his Batman or his sort of servant uh, to uh, a member of the the officer class in that in that war and has been with him ever since. It does then mean that he is himself originally a member of the lower class, but it does also mean that for decades now he has been living as the assistant to a member of the elite who's doing who's clearly doing quite well for himself and therefore Wesley is doing quite well for himself and seems perhaps to have shifted his identity and his his loyalties, uh, at least those that are built along identity lines like that, but yet still is also Bullard's bruiser, right? That that he speaks the same language that Luke Honey does, uh, and he knows what's been going on between Luke and Bullard. And Bullard is supposed to be the aristocratic gentleman who just carries on and, uh, you know, gives stiff upper lip and all of that sort of thing. Wesley is the person who then afterwards, later, rolls up his sleeves and sorts the problem out. And Bullard never even needs to be the wiser about it. That's my sense of their relationship. And, you know, that's going to matter a little bit more. Uh, What matters more, though, I think, is that, hey, we get some background about Luke Honey. This is where he starts to tell us about his his working class background. He tells us that his grandfather chopped cotton, his father picked potatoes, and that this is why he was really rankled by the classism of Wesley and Bullard. I totally agree with you with regards to the relationship between Lord Bullard and, and Mr. Wesley. And it almost seems even in the telling of that story of the hunting expedition in Mexico that Lord Bullard had to re- be reminded on some sense that Wesley was there. Wesley's always there. And it, it appears as though he's always in the background in Bullard's life. So Bullard can assume that Wesley was always there, but he maybe needs to be reminded a little bit. So I really appreciate your tightening up of that description of their relationship because it, it makes the way the story's told uh, a little hit a little bit harder when we get to the end of it. Well, we're still in the stables and Scobie is the stable master. We're meeting him for the first time. He's getting all the animals ready for the hunt while the men prepare. And within an hour, everyone is in the woods. A few of the men get into conversation with Luke about his credentials and how he got involved in the hunt. And yeah, Luke's a real hunter. He's killed lots of elephants and lions. He's worked for the Dutch in Africa. And he ended up in South Africa after college and hasn't been home since. But now Luke is out of the hunting business as well. So this kind of gives us the sense that this is going to be Luke's last hunting expedition. Luke quit hunting because there was this one huge elephant hunt that he was involved with. Everyone in his party got a ton of ivory, which means it was a super successful hunt. But when it ended, Luke got sick with fever. And while he was sick, he had a vision of the devil waiting to claim his soul, like the devil was hiding under his bed. And 
part of this vision was his mother coming to visit him. She had wings folded against her back and a white light surrounded her. Her eyes were fiery. And when Luke came to, his mother was gone. And later Luke was saved by the intervention of a village doctor. But Luke has a kind of reading of this dream and its meaning. And it wasn't that his mother was looking down on him him from heaven and disapproving of his behavior, though she was disapproving of his behavior. It's just that she was looking up at him from hell. And so this gives Luke the feeling that he's a condemned man. Right. So Luke got malaria. He had terrible fever dreams and quit hunting, or at least quit poaching, right? Which is, I think, pretty clearly what he was really up to. He was involved in the ivory trade as an elephant tracker. Uh, He was doing well for himself financially in this business, but now he wants the prize money so that he can retire. But it's the dreaming that matters here, I think. It's the third time that we've heard about his nightmares. And we're going to come back to this in the discussion. I mean, this is not going away in the recap either. It's important to the plot, but we're going to take up these dreams in the discussion for sure. I do also want to call attention to Scobie here. Uh, Baron tells us that he's Welsh, uh, that he's cunning with dogs and horses and traps and snares, and that he's regarded as a peasant prince. And he is also wearing clothes that seem like they come from what uh, Baron describes as some dim medieval era And we're about to go into the woods and hunt a stag, and we know something supernatural is going to be going on. So Baron here is conjuring up our pop culture images of Welsh folklore and mythology in order to build up the supernatural tension. And and really, what the words Welsh and dim medieval are signaling here is woodsy paganism. Yes, that's right. And yeah, both the dreams and woodsy paganism are going to be a major part of this story. Well, now the hunting is in full swing and Bollard got the first hit. He shot a buck and the buck ran off, as is the case. So they have to track it. And when the hunting party gets close enough to finish the job, they find that the buck has been mauled pretty badly. Luke tells a brief story about being gored by a boar. And then he talks about his gear loadout for this hunt, which is the only intrusion of the techno thriller we'll get in this story. (laughs) Um, But Mr. Williams here also talks a little bit and he talks to Luke Honey and thinks that, hey, Luke, you're a little bit mysterious. It's not just the fact that Luke came from a poor family and then went to college and then escaped to Africa. It's not just that. It's just Luke's whole mode of being. And Luke's mysteriousness is really a core element of this story as well. Right. He might not be being completely upfront with everyone about who he is, where he's from, what his backstory is. Uh, We're going to get some more of that. Yes. Uh, Well, after a little bit more hunting, everyone needs a break and it's close enough to nighttime to set up camp, even though everybody wants to hunt a little more. One of the stable boys comes out now to take care of the animals, and he tells Scobie, who relays this information to the group, that he's seen some giant stag tracks. And they're huge. They're so big that the way that Scobie describes them, or the boy has described them, that no one can believe that stag tracks can be that big. The boy's name is Arlen, by the way. He'll come back. Then Scobie convinces everyone to head to camp, which they do. And at this point, Luke feels 
an oppressive sense of menace, like that one time when he was hunting a man-eating lion in Africa. Anyway, everyone sits down to eat, and some of the meal is made from the buck that Bullard shot earlier. And Bullard and Wesley really dig into the liver, but they're warned that eating the liver right now will probably give them diarrhea. They should have let it cool a little bit. But these men have strong intestines from the war, and Bullard doubles down to prove it, though Wesley heeds the advice of (laughs) other people in this hunting party. And at this point, Lanscombe gets everyone's attention and tells them a little bit about what's going on. They are all in a place called Wolfvale, and a lot of the locals consider this part of the forest to be cursed. The locals don't come here, and they never did. Now, the locals don't come out here because of the wild animals. They're extremely dangerous. But before the locals never visited this part of the woods, because of some person named Black Bill, or sometimes he was called Splayfoot Bill. He's a sort of devil figure, if not maybe the devil himself. Bill has been around for a long time as a local legend of these parts. For instance, the Indians who lived here prior to the settlers referred to him as the Horned Man. Wellick explains now that some of his ancestors, Wellick's ancestors, We're into some occult stuff, and the town library is full of accounts of strange phenomena taking place at a place called Ransom Hollow. Turns out that lots of kids and villagers have vanished in that area. Now Lanscombe is talking again, and he says that the hunt has been going on long before the lodge was officially established, and that every year someone dies or is gravely injured or simply goes missing. So now we kind of get a shift of information, at least as I have read this story, that earlier we were told that the hunt has been going on as a tradition of the lodge, but turns out it's been going on a lot longer. Wesley asks about this last bit, about people going missing or dying or getting injured. And Lanscombe explains that, hey, there are just lots of places to step off the trail and disappear. But now, Lanscombe wants to talk more about Blackwood and his baby. Uh, This is the scary story for this night of the hunting trip. The Blackwood family were a family of furriers, and their trap line ran through Wolfvale and Ransom Hollow. The family became very successful through their career as furriers, and this led the locals to believe that the Blackwoods made a deal with Splayfoot Bill. And hey, that's how they became successful. The story goes that Bill required some really gnarly stuff in return for this favor. For instance, uh, a local priest accused the elder Blackwood of laying with Bill, having sex with is what we mean here, who took the form of a doe. And then that doe gave birth to a hideous offspring That offspring then became the first monstrous stag in the line of stags that they're hunting, hence Blackwood's baby. The men all laugh at this revelation and at the conclusion of this campfire tale, it's pretty silly. Uh, But then Bullard gets diarrhea and the men turn in for the night. But as they're sleeping, Luke Honey dreams that the stag visits the campfire. And then he hears sounds from animals that can only be found in Africa. And Luke wakes up not knowing his dream from reality. 
obviously this legend is going to turn out to be true, or at least in you know some parts of it are going to turn out to be true. And now we as readers get to enjoy the suspense of seeing how that is going to play out. And and Baron gives us some really fun hints here when he has Wellock, who who is you know one of the owners of the lodge, uh, when he has Wellock say that some of his ancestors were given to dabbling in the occult and all matters mystical. And then we also get Scobie talking about how the people in the nearby town still get their kids home and locked in by sundown every single day. All of that is a great setup, right? I mean, it's, it's spooky and it's, it's great. It's a great setup. And this dream is also pretty great. If it you know, even is a dream at all. I, I want to elaborate a little on it. He wakes up and he hears branches crackling and then he sees a large black animal looking around the camp. It huffs and leaves, but then Luke vaguely hears the sound of panpipes in the distance. So, you know, that's our, our woodsy paganism. And then he starts to hear the sounds of a lion. There's a hyena laughing. And then he really wakes up. And I do love the way that Baron describes all of this. I mean, I've spent some time camping in the backcountry. I have encountered animals in camp at night, you know, black bears and uh, foxes, bighorn sheep, that sort of thing. And it is always creepy, even when everything is fine and you just go back to sleep, hearing that sound. I mean, you just get to a state of alertness uh, and and start to wonder if, you know, maybe something supernatural is actually happening. You, you just can't help it when you're in that situation. And, and Baron nails that description here. He really does. I always like to tell people who have not been out in some, you know, either big sky country and f- that isolation of from civilization or a town or a city or even other people, uh, either just a massive, beautiful plain with mountains in the background or deep in the woods. If you've never experienced that, you might have a hard time believing why superstitions and religions are such a big deal. <laughs> but I think when you're out there, it becomes much more plausible to believe in, you know, giants wielding axes and splitting mountains or <laughs> gods of thunder and things along those lines. Bullard spends a lot of the next morning running off into the woods, well, because he ate that liver. (laughs) And it happens that Wesley, the person who Luke was in a fight with, is not doing so hot himself, though this isn't the result of the liver eating. Williams comments to Luke that Luke might have killed Wesley with that punch to the lower ribcage. And Luke nods and, and agrees. He's seen a fight where someone took the butt of a gun to a rib cage and died four days later. So, hey, this is classic foreshadowing here. Williams wants to know more about Luke, and he wants to know how Luke got invited to this hunt at all. And this is strange, what we learned from Luke. Luke tells Williams that his family and the Wellicks actually go way back, and that Luke grew up hearing about the Blackwoods baby lore. And Williams comments that, Luke looks afraid, and Luke says, that's right. It's good to be afraid on a hunt. Mother Nature is out for blood, too, not just us hunters. And I think that Luke kind of implies here that he believes the story about Blackwood. Williams scoffs a little bit and thinks it's ridiculous, although William's uncle had come on this hunt twice, but he died on the second one. So maybe there is some reason to be concerned about hunting the stag. The party splits up at this point, and now everyone is taking their own trail after Blackwood's baby. They're all deep in the forest, and 
this section of the forest reminds Luke of every scary childhood story and folktale that he's heard or read growing up and throughout his life. At noon, Luke's group stops and breaks for lunch. And Arlen, uh, Scobie's stable boy, though there's more to that relationship as we'll find out, runs up to tell this group that Scobie's on the trail and now they're off again. I am not sure what to make of Luke's story about how he got involved in this hunt. He, he says that because he's heard these stories about Blackwood's baby growing up, he's always intended to participate in one of these hunts. And that isn't necessarily contradicted by what we saw at the beginning, since all Baron showed us was Luke in Africa receiving a, a telegram. And maybe the telegram was in response to one that he sent asking to join the hunt or, or, or something like that. But he has now told two different stories about some alleged cousins that he has, some in Utah, where he eventually went to live uh, after his mother died, is how he tells that story. And then there are cousins here in Ransom Hollow, whom they would visit sometimes because Luke and his parents lived vaguely on the other side of the mountains, right? Like whatever that means. So I am not sure that he is being at all truthful about where he is from or what he's doing here. I mean, right. We could ask him if he has a girlfriend and he would probably say yes, but she goes to another school. Like that's my sense <laughs> of who he is at this moment. But another thing that we get in this section is a list of spooky writers that Luke read as a kid. Robert Louis Stevenson, Ambrose Bierce, and M.R. James. One... It is crazy that we've only done one of those writers on the show. <laughs> Two, it's funny that who is left off this list is Algernon Blackwood, given that we are clearly in a riff on Blackwood's most famous story, The Wendigo, which, as we said at the top of the show, we are not going to talk about it all since we also haven't done that on the show yet. But what jumped out to me really was M.R. James. Uh, Beerson and Stevenson are classics, uh, you know, by the time, you know, by of this, the setting of this story, say, you know, 1929, maybe it's 1930. And so they would have been available wherever Luke was in the States, but not M.R. James. James's collections would have been contemporary to Luke's childhood and were printed in the UK and almost certainly were not available in either rural Washington or in Utah. Now, I don't know that Baron is thinking along those lines when he invokes James here, but it definitely screams liar to me. It's entirely possible. I think maybe you're adding a little too much weight to the James reference here, uh, it, but it certainly speaks to your overall thesis that Luke is being dishonest. When we're introduced to Luke, it's as someone who's gotten into this hunt because of his credentials as a great hunter, not because of this these weird family connections and all this other stuff that really doesn't make any sense in the context of the story we've been told so far about Luke. So while I appreciate the publication history of <laughs> MR James here, um, you're right to highlight that it underscores the dishonesty or deceitfulness of Luke being open about who he is with these other men. Um, and you're also right to point out that Algernon Blackwood is a glaring absence in the, you know, influence of one, this tale, but maybe also Luke's right to like right attitude towards being afraid of the woods. I will say I just started a book uh, last night laying in bed pretty late that I'm pretty excited to read uh, that is co-written by Guillermo del Toro and um, another writer 
that is dedicated Guillermo del Toro is dedicated to Algernon Blackwood. That made me so excited, uh, <laughs> though I'm not sure how the book is going to turn out. Hey, that's an aside. Take of it what you will. The next section opens with this line. An hour later, all hell broke loose. Everyone has found themselves in a clearing where they have tracked the stag to. And Scobie's dogs are strewn about. They're dead. Bullard and Wesley are kind of shooting randomly into the woods. Bullard's horse has run off. It's collided with another hunter's horse, knocking that hunter to the ground. And then that horse and Bullard's horse run off together. So here's the tally of this all hell breaking loose. There's a couple injured hunters. Scobie has to go around and kill his wounded dogs, the ones that aren't dead already. And two horses are down or gone. Everyone is tense and upset. Williams asks Bullard what happened because Luke and Williams group were the ones who kind of showed up on the scene to discover this awful situation. The stag had speared the dogs with horns. Wesley shot the stag, but that didn't do anything to slow the stag down. And Wesley is coughing and he's in bad shape. And that's because of the punch he received. So Lanscombe, who's a doctor, checks Wesley out and basically tells everyone that we've got to slow this hunt down. Maybe we need to stop it. We got to get Wesley to the hospital right away. Oh, and by the way, Arlen is missing. Luke says, we've got to stay and go after the kid. There are only four hours of light left at this point. And Scobie whispers ominously, it's never taken the dogs. This line from Scobie, it, it really matters. It matters because it tells us that this hell breaking loose is not part of the routine, right? These guys say they do this hunt every year and someone is always lost. And that is so obviously by design, right? The whole thing is a lure and a trap. They're sacrificing people to uh, this monster, you know, Satan, whatever is out here. But this line tells us that the plan is messed up this year. And of course, Scobie is worried about Arlen. We learn here or, you know, adjacent to this anyway, that Arlen is his grandson. And presumably because Arlen is part of the group who are putting on this, you know, stage play, basically, who are part of the lure and the trap uh, to bring the sacrifices here, that Arlen is supposed to be off limits by the arrangement that they have made with whatever this supernatural creature is. So nothing is going right. Things are not going according to plan. The rules are not being followed this year. That's right. And everybody's concern is sort of split again. And that concern being split means that the parties have to split up, or at least they're talking about splitting up again, because they have to get the injured men to the campsite so that they can get back to the house as quickly as possible. And, you know, everyone can meet at the lodge in the morning, but there's also people who are concerned about the kid. And those people really are Luke and Mr. Williams. Though there are others in the hunting party that think we have four hours of daylight, we need to do this search now. So they form a line and spread out in search of Arlen. They can pretty easily track the stag because it's bleeding from the shot that Wesley gave it. And they can follow its blood through the woods, thinking that the stag has taken the boy. But pretty soon the blood trail runs dry and everyone gets really discouraged. At this point, Mr. Williams talks to Luke about how this experience 
mirrors his uncle's stories about the first hunt. Obviously, Mr. Williams' uncle didn't have any stories from the second hunt. But he talked about disaster when he came home. Williams is certain now that something truly evil is behind all of this catastrophe and chaos. Not only is Arlen in danger, but everyone is. Luke doesn't argue with Williams' assessment, and suddenly night falls upon them, almost mystically, and Luke is alone. He and Williams got split up somehow, and all this takes place really between sentences, so we're, as readers, left with a sense of chaos or disorientation as well. Luke moves through the woods, though it's difficult for him to see, and soon he finds himself in a small grove. There's some sort of phosphorescent light glowing and coming up out of the earth. And with this light, Luke is able to see a statue made out of white marble, though it's now stained black with moss. The statue is of a horned man or maybe a god. In any event, it's an idol to a dark and vile other. Luke loses his strength here. It's like it's being sapped out of him and a fog that he breathes in, a miasma almost, infects his body. Get behind me, devil, Luke says. And then he begins to lose his sight and the statue blurs and expands in front of him and he hears evil voices of the ancient people who built this obscene statue. A child screams. Luke's nose bleeds And then the statue speaks through Luke's mouth. Fresh blood is best. Baby blood. Boy child blood. Rich, red, sweet, rare boy blood. What, little man, what could you offer the Lord of the dark? What, you feeble fly? Luke turns his head and sees his brother in the field. And then Luke sees himself at 14, trying to load the single shot 22. He sees the muzzle flash just as his brother leans in to look at the barrel. His father has sent Luke away and Luke's mother died, a broken woman shortly afterwards. The moon blocks the sun. Luke's mother stands at the entrance of the tent with her charred wings. Arlen looks at Luke, terrified. Take me instead, Luke says. The other says, you're already mine. Then everything stops. Mr. Williams is there leaning over Luke. He tells Luke that he was laughing like a maniac. They get up. Mr. Williams makes a comment about the statue, how the worshipers had the statue shipped in to worship their old gods. Luke says they need to get away from this statue. And Mr. Williams agrees. The two men wander around, and they're following the sounds of gunshots that someone at the camp is shooting off in order to orient whoever is still out uh, of the hunting party uh, to get them back to the camp, and Luke and Mr. Williams eventually find the camp. They decide independently of one another, not to mention the statue. At the camp, Mr. Wesley is just about dead. No one tells tales this night, and soon everyone goes to bed. Loads of backstory here. We learn that there is some truth to what Lucas said and to what he has dreamed. Uh, When he was a kid, apparently, 14, he, he accidentally shot and killed his brother. 
And that event has been haunting him ever since, right? Traveling the world, living dangerously. These are these are not well behaviors, right? He's running, he's maybe even trying to die, maybe not consciously, but he seems to be living recklessly on purpose. And we also hear Git Williams explaining the backstory of the supernatural element. I thought this was too convenient. Suddenly he knows all about how people brought their gods with them from the old world and still worship them here. And also how loads of people know about that. And maybe there are a lot of rich people involved in this. And also scholars drop by this part of rural Washington sometimes. And and this, for me, this was the one weak part of the story. It felt really forced. I mean, it felt like actually this was something Barron was forced to include by an editor. Uh, I myself have gotten enough revise and resubmit letters to know that editors <laughs> prefer accessibility rather than puzzles and mysteries, even though I don't think that that's true of actual readers. And that whole paragraph felt like a late addition to the story to appease an editor. That could very well be. It's it's odd to have this exposition come from Mr. Williams because he's built up as a good companion. He's somebody who knows a little bit about this because of his uncle, but to have him have all of this extra knowledge dumped at this point, I I might have maybe moved it to have Wellock or Lanscombe speak regretfully of this stuff at the campfire. I think the it doesn't necessarily break the momentum of the story, but I think reading it with the critical eye that you're reading it with Glenn, um, it makes sense to to feel that it it is a a weak part of the story. But I think the story continues to to finish rather strongly. Yeah, it certainly doesn't ruin the story for me. But I think what you're pointing to, of course, is that one, Williams isn't the person who should know any of this. He's from Texas. And so why isn't someone else telling that? And of course, the reason is that we want to have all the suspense up to this moment. And so that's really where it jumped out to me as being where we're never, we were never intended to get, Baron never intended for us to get this information. We were supposed to be able to infer this on our own. We were supposed to think about it, maybe finish the story and say, oh, what happened? What's the explanation for what was going on here? And to figure it out for yourself and to take that as part of the joy of reading the story, but that an editor wanted people to just get it in the story. And so Baron put it here because to put it somewhere else would be, well, one, to break the character of Wellock and Lanscombe, who are trying to trick people into coming out here, (laughs) but two, also to ruin the suspense element of it. And so he just puts it here where, hey, we've already figured it out, so we might as well just explain it. And that makes the editor happy. Yeah, and and we've already gotten you know information about the locals and their fear of this part of the woods. I mean, clearly this where the statue is is Ransom Hollow, um, and I think what we want, what Baron wants us to focus on at the campsite is Wesley's illness, Wesley kind of falling apart, and that's where the next section of the story picks up. Everyone gets up in the morning except for Mister Wesley. He is dead. And Bullard openly weeps at this discovery. And now he totally hates Luke. Wellick makes this strange remark that the forest is particularly greedy this season. And then Scobie tells Wellick to hold his tongue. Scobie is convinced that his grandson Arlen is still alive and they'll find him. And this is the moment, I think, where that revelation that Arlen is Scobie's grandson is super clear. Wellick tells Scobie that the odds that Arlen has survived the night are slim. 
Scobie says that they have to continue the search, but Wellick says that his responsibility is to get the guests out of the wood safely and to make arrangements for Wesley's funeral. And I think what we're supposed to infer here is that whatever the ritual is, whatever the person dying situation is, the lore, the follow through of this whole hunting tradition is that they took Arlen, so now everybody needs to scram. But the other men of the hunting party side with Scobie, and they're all bickering about this. And then Lanscombe cuts everybody off and tells them all that Arlen is gone and that Scobie is going to go on this own this quixotic quest of his own. The hunters try to push back at this, but Lanscombe and Wellick are really clear that for the rest of the men to stay any longer in the woods would be equivalent to tempting fate, especially if they decide to remain in Wolfvale past this day's sunset. This is an outrageous statement that does not get further explained in the text, <laughs> though we kind of can ex- infer what it means. And at this point, even Luke says, in Luke's deceitful way, as we'll find out, that it is best if everyone gets out of the woods, though Luke also believes that it's best if everyone gets out of the woods. Bullard agrees that something unnatural is afoot here, too, and he tells Luke now that he'll answer for what he did to Wesley. Luke knows that he'll answer for that, but this punch to Wesley's ribcage, where probably Luke did intend to kill Wesley on some level is pretty low on the list of things that Luke needs to answer for. So everyone agrees to pack up camp and everyone is a little concerned about Scobie, but they're looking after their own safety here. Wellick says that Scobie can fend for himself, so don't worry too much. And that when they get back to town, Wellick and Lanscombe will make sure that they inform the sheriff that Arlen is missing and the sheriff is going to come out and search for Arlen. But Luke knows that Arlen won't be found. Luke has a metaphysical understanding of what's taking place during this hunt. The woods have taken their sacrifice, and that's just how it is. Lots of religions and traditions require an offering, and Wellock and Lanscombe uphold the tradition of providing this offering to Ransom Hollow every year. This is just how the world works, and nothing can be done about it. Luke lets the party use his horse for Wesley's body. It's a nice gesture. And Luke trails behind the rest of the party as they make their way back up to the lodge. Williams tells Luke that he hopes Luke doesn't think him a coward. And then Williams gives a defense of his decision to head back to the lodge instead of searching for Arlen. And Luke just brushes him off. When the party takes a break later, Luke stays behind so he can finish his cigarette and they leave and nobody really notices that Luke is not with them. When Luke finishes his smoke, he turns around and heads back into the woods. Yeah, I think we should pause here and and just be clear about what is going on in this story. There is a supernatural being in the woods and it wants to kill one human every year. It used to just stalk around and take people, but Wellick and Lanscombe have made an arrangement with this supernatural being that if it just hangs out in the woods, they'll bring it a sacrifice every summer. And that is what this hunting competition is. It's a way to lure strangers to town and then arrange for them to go into the woods where one of them will disappear. You know, 
be taken and killed by this supernatural being, right, is what we're talking about here. But this year, things have gone wrong. Instead of waiting to take one of the visitors, it has taken the boy, Arlen, the local, a grandson of one of the people who is in on this. And I have the sense here that Wellick and Lanscombe are pretty freaked out about this, and that's why they want to get out. Uh, Wesley being hurt is convenient for them uh, along those lines, but that they are really freaked out and want to get out of here. Because if Blackwood's baby is breaking the agreement in this way, what is to stop him from breaking it in other ways too? Like taking more than one person, like taking one of them, right? That's my sense of it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. They're fearing for their own lives because yes, if they can take Arlen, they can take Wellick. And so it's not a situation they want to be in any longer. Luke has left the hunting party, as we know, and he's in the woods now and he tracks Scobie down because he hears screaming in the woods. Luke is haunted by the sounds of shrieking dogs and gunshots and the phantom bellows of men. Initially, when I read this story, uh, you know, when I read it the first time, uh, it seemed to me that Luke could hear Scobie screaming, but then we get this phantom bellows of men. And what's really happening is that Luke is just being drawn back to Ransom Hollow. It's night now. Luke sees Mr. Wesley with a black stain on his chest. And Mr. Wesley takes two objects from inside of his hat and he drops them into some bushes nearby. Then Lancegome comes out of the shadows and he draws Wesley back into them. This is a another very haunting vision. Luke approaches the objects in the bush and when he sees what they are, he recoils and his courage leaves him. He moves through the underbrush and then he hears a gunshot. Luke moves towards the sound of the gunshot and a large animal runs past him and then Scobie is upon him. Scobie aims his gun at Luke and says, I see you, Bill. Luke tells Scobie that it's not Bill, that he's come to help and find the boy, but he doesn't want to talk about what he found in the bushes. And in any event, Scobie is a broken shell of a man. Scobie says that Arlen is gone. And Luke tells Scobie that the stag is wounded and hey, they, they might still be able to track it down and find Arlen. But Scobie says the game is over. They're both done for. They've stayed in the woods too long. You can't even kill the stag anyway, and now it's going to come for them. This is the devil's preserve. Luke asks Scobie for a drink, and they drink some whiskey from Scobie's canteen. And let me just recommend, uh, it's great to bring a bottle of booze on a camping trip or even a hiking trip. Not great to replace your water with booze uh, when you're <laughs> in the woods. In any event, the two men set up a campfire and they eat some jerky later. In the night, Scobie says this, it used to be worse. My grandsire claimed some of the more devout folk would drag girls from their homes and cut out their innards on them. Stone tablets you'll find under a tree here or there. So Glenn, as you already pointed out, this hunt invitation is a better way to appease the cultists. <laughs> Basically, these <laughs> devout folk are just uh, cultists of Black Bill. Luke, at this point, can't get the image of what he found in the bushes out of his mind. And this is where we learn what those things were. It's Arlen's hands. But 
now Luke is concerned that Scobie has got murder on his mind. Scobie says he doesn't know what to do. I mean, Scobie's just a wreck here. He's a man of God. But Luke points out that Scobie kind of actually serves the dark one. (laughs) And here Scobie disagrees. The hunt is going to happen whether Scobie's here or not. But if Scobie is here, at least he has the chance to kill the devil. Luke replies that Scobie's paid a steep price, which is, you know, the loss of Arlen here, in order for the chance to do this. Scobie nods and tells Luke it's time to go. The old thing is waiting for them. Scobie made a pact with it to save Arlen's life. He promised it Luke. Luke's upset, obviously. I mean, we all would be, but he he understands as he knows that these things never turn out the way that the pact maker expects them to. Scobie leads an obedient-ish Luke to a clearing. He cries out in a voice held over from his ancestors. Then he turns to get Luke. But Luke hits Scobie with the butt of his rifle, and Scobie stumbles out into the middle of this clearing. And as he does, Luke is filled with grief. He sees Michael's ghost, but Luke is inoculated against such images. He hardens himself and he says, my hell is to testify. Don't you understand? He doesn't want me. He took me years ago. Then the stag comes out of the darkness. Blood oozes from the gashes and gunshot wounds on its flanks. It stands above Scobie. Scobie falls to his knees to beg mercy. The stag nuzzles Scobie's hair and licks the tears from Scobie's face. Then it opens its jaws wide and, quote, there was a sound like a ripe cabbage cracking apart. And Luke, well, he sits on the bowl of an old oak and watches. And that's the end of the story. Yeah, I just want to read the last line of the story, which is this. Luke Honey slumped against the bowl of the oak, the rifle, a dead, useless weight across his knees, and watched. And I, I, I think that the uselessness of the rifle suggests that this does not have a happy ending for Luke, but I, I actually want to wait to take that up in the discussion episode. So let me just say here that I loved the intensity of this ending. The descriptions are just awesome. I mean, even, you know, the simile of like a ripe cabbage cracking apart, it's gruesome. It's describing a pretty awful thing, but it's some brilliant writing. This is top-notch stuff here. Yeah, I really, really loved this story. It was something that though it was very grim and dark and uh, haunting and full of dark imagery, uh, I really enjoyed reading, reading it the number of times I did in, in preparing for this show. And I cannot wait to discuss it further, but that's going to have to wait to our next episode. So that's going to do it for this one. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And if you would like to commission an episode of your own, you can do that by visiting the website, uh, or you can contact us via email or Twitter or Reddit. 
If you're a Patreon supporter, you get a discount on episode commissions, of course, and you can even get some free ones at some levels, and Patreon is a a great place to message us as well, and we really do love doing commissioned episodes, so if you've got a favorite story that, you know, it seems like we are never going to cover, and you wish we would, let us know. We'd love to talk to you about making that happen. We really would. And head over to the Clay Temple forums and talk to us about it. You can also uh, drop us a line on our subreddit, Clay Temple Media. So next time, as Brandon said, we will be back with a discussion episode about this story. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.